It's February 7th, 2011, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to a new episode and the fourth anniversary of the show. I'm pleased to say that I've been around for this long, and that the show continues to be a source of both information and inspiration to the many listeners from all over the world. I appreciate the many ways you continue to let me know what the show has and continues to mean to you. We've conducted over 100 interviews with some great photographers, and I have no plans of slowing down. So expect more conversations in the months and years to come. Today's guest is a slight departure, but it should be a fascinating one nevertheless. Our guest, Gail Tattersall, is a cinematographer who you may have recently heard about because of his decision to film the season finale of the popular television show House using 5D Mark IIs. Considering the increasing role of video capture in many photographers' lives, I thought it would be a great opportunity to discuss some of the more interesting aspects of this new creative outlet with a man who has certainly mastered his passion. So sit back and enjoy our conversation with Gail Tattersall. Gail, well, welcome to the Candid uh, Candid Frame. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, well, thank you, thank, thank you very, very much for inviting me. This is a, a real pleasure and an honor. So there we go. You're the they're the first uh, person I've had on the show whose whose reputation has been largely built as a as a cinematographer. Though I know you have your roots in in still photography, but I thought it would be an interesting uh, opportunity to talk to you because of the convergence that's happening now with digital SLRs and 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 video capture, but. Why don't you tell us first about what inspired you to want to pick up a camera and to record something with it? Um, I've always liked image making. Um, I think um, I got the bug from my dad. He, um, believe it or not, you know, when uh, um, I was young, he used to actually shoot her movies on a 16 mil Bolex, which uh, um, in this day and age, I didn't think would be feasible economically, but um you know, he used to have reels and reels and reels of 100 foot loads of um, 16 mil film, and we'd watch them at home on a on a projector. And um, I just got to love um, uh, motion pictures, basically. And um, you know, and stills came out of that. The the first job I ever had was um, photographing architectural um, work from um, students in a college in London, and. Um, then I was I was asked to make a film about um, a visit by the very famous Buckminster Fuller, um, the American architect and uh, philosopher, and um, I just fell, fell in love with the filmmaking process. Um, uh, went to the uh, London Film School and um, spent two years there, and um, um, basically um, just love film and um, making images. It's such a powerful medium, and. Um, um, I'm an absolutely useless artist in terms of drawing and uh, uh, painting, so this seemed to be a very natural thing for me. And um, you know, uh, it all started from there. Years in the darkroom, uh, which um, I think um, helped me become a good cinematographer. Um, just the reaction 
you know, to lie John Silver is such a wonderful process. And, um, you know, um, so much of what we do now is um, so electronic and digital that um, I think um, the tactile and the hands-on and the, um, the you know, I still have a, a huge wet darkroom and I, I have a, a collection of very large format cameras that um, I use, uh, you know, just because I love the tactile process of developing and um, printing and all of that. And it's, um, uh, you know, something that um, just inspires me, basically. So it, it sort of comes from that. I used to spend hours into the night sort of printing photos on, you know, um, 16 by 20s, 8 by 10s, that kind of thing. And, so the two things have always been interlinked in my in my entire life, and um, you know um, now obviously things are changing in an enormous way. You know. Yeah. What do you think it is? What do you? What are the qualities that you think are important in terms of being a still photographer that helps to develop an eye to become a great cinematographer? Um. I, I think a few things. I think you develop a passion for light, and even though, um, you know, obviously in stills it's just a moment, um, nevertheless, um, it teaches you a massive amount about com um, composition and light and juxtaposition of images. And um, to me, this kind of, uh, it's really interesting. I think there's really only one secret of great cinematography, and that is, um, just putting the emphasis um, of the audience, the audience's eye onto the one thing within the frame that you actually want them to really look at at the time. And that's a combination of depth of field, of lighting, of um, uh, composition. And, um, uh, you know, I've always felt something very, very strange about film and photography is what's perhaps just outside of the frame sometimes can actually be more important than what's just inside the frame. Um, just because sometimes the human imagination, well, a lot of the time the human imagination is so much more powerful than a graphic representation that if you imagine something just below or just to the side of a frame, it can be much more powerful than actually showing the actual thing itself. Um, um, you know, uh, whatever it might be, it might be a weapon, it might be a gun, it might be something that you know is just lurking, just out of picture, and that um, is, a, is a very powerful element. So the frame itself is kind of um, the thing that links us both together, um, you know, cinematographers and photographers. So um, I suppose it's that, you know, um, that um, um, gives me passion in terms of image making. Um, you know, and it's always a battle. I mean, you have to work very hard to create an image, and it becomes um, obviously slightly more um, complex in terms of cinematography, just because the image is always moving and the camera is always moving. And um, you know, there are times when the lighting is perfect, and um, uh, just camera motion can often take you from a beautifully lit image into a rather flat image, depending upon. Um, what the nature of the movement, the nature of the composition. So, um, you know, these are the, the kinds of elements you have to deal with um, differently than a stills photographer. But um, I love both with a passion. So, um, well, you touched you know, on, a, on a couple of points that I was hoping to to, to get your get your comment on, and and one of them has to do with with the nature of 
composing pictures, but now having to consider the fact that the subjects or the scene in front of the camera is, is moving. And I think a lot of people, particularly now who've maybe have been shooting for a while, they see cameras like the 5D Mark II or the, or the D90 or any, any assortment of these, these cameras that are able to capture video. And they may be able to capture wonderful still images, but somehow as a result of the fact that there's movement and time involved, um, it's not necessarily translating. So what are the things that, that you as a, uh, as a cinematographer feel that people need to understand that they need to understand in order to make most effective use of it? Well, I think um, you know, the, the extra tool or set of tools that you have as a cinematographer is that, is that you can um, go from um, a very powerful image to a very powerful image, um, which might have nothing to do with each other. I mean, it's storytelling on the move. So um, instead of having a series of stills that perhaps explain the story, you can make a beautiful, smooth transition in, in terms of cinematography or videography that um, basically takes you from one element to another in a very, very powerful way. I mean, for example, even the simplest um, technique such as that, which might be just as simple as a rack focus from somebody doing something in foreground to something ominous happening in the background um, can be accomplished in a one and a half second shot just literally by shifting focus and throwing the emphasis into, um, you know, another whole realm of imagery and feeling and passion. And, um, you know, so these are the sorts of things. And I don't think that um, this is a difficult transition for um, good stills photographers to do. Um, it's just finding the transitions. And I think it's the transitions that are all important in this case. Mm. Talk about the camera movement, because you've touched on that. And, um, I've heard that one of the things in, that's really important in, in, with respect to moving the camera is that there has to be a reason for the camera to be moving rather than just being being locked down. And I think because of the small nature of these cameras, it's easy to, to constantly move, be moving the camera. But when do you really have to pay particular consideration for the reasons why you're moving the camera in any variety of ways from doing the follow focus technique you talking you talked about or or panning or uh, working on a dolly well i think um um it's all about storytelling and um you know how we tell um storytelling we um we make storytelling work in as a series of stills i mean in motion you have this absolutely um wonderful gift of being able to do that in the move on the move um you know, so so I think um, the motion is incredibly important. I think sometimes um, some directors tend to want to move the camera for no real reason otherwise, other than just the fact that the camera has wheels on it. And sometimes um, it's not necessarily the best thing to do. Sometimes a static image where people enter an exit frame can be more powerful than doing a very fancy circular track around something. Um, um, you know, so I think it's a tool that can be abused as well as used in a fantastic way. But luckily, um, most of the directors I've had, you know, the good fortune to work with are very smart about these sorts of things and use um, camera movement to, um, you know, really great effect. And, um, 
you know, um, just in terms of developing the story and um, um, racking focus might be one of them, um, you know, moving um, sort of off an actor and into looking in through a window can, you know, create in two seconds um, an incredibly powerful piece of imagery that would be very hard to recreate in um, a portfolio of stills. You wouldn't have that sort of transitional period. So it's the transition itself that's um, uh, the singular most important thing to um, moving the camera, um, I would say. Could you give us an example of... of one of these choices that you may have made recently in terms of the movement of the camera to serve a particular uh, moment in the, in the story? Um, yes, I think, um, um, as you, as you probably know, we, um, shot the season finale of season six on house entirely with the five D and it, it wasn't a conscious decision because we wanted to be the first at shooting a network TV and proving that you could actually use a, um, a $2,500 camera to shoot a, a network TV. It was because we basically started off with a script that um, uh, consisted of a building having collapsed with a, a huge industrial crane, so we were forced to shoot in spaces that were just... Uh, completely impossible for our conventional Aeroflex cameras that, you know, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, um, are very, very big and heavy and bulky. And uh, we were working in sets that were literally three feet tall. Um, you know, so um, just the exploration and the fact that you move the camera um, creates a three-dimensionality. So, um, for example, we, we had to do a shot of Hugh Laurie House um, uh, crawling down a passageway, which was literally um, probably about three feet in diameter. And, um, you know, obviously underground at night under a collapsed building, there's not very many opportunities for lighting. So we lit most of the scene just purely with a flashlight, which was... Um, um, in his own hands, so the the lighting of himself was completely in his own hands by um, having pieces of um, muslin, you know, cotton fabric that were um, hidden behind beams and uh, rocks and pieces of concrete that had collapsed. Um, so, um, for example, we were able to create a camera movement just literally by moving a 5D um, uh, on a um, literally skateboard wheel um, device on a piece of speed rail um, because the camera is so light we could track down a, a tunnel um, you know obviously viewing the image remotely but this would be an example of how you um, explore an environment and um, something that would be impossible to create on stills um, so you um, you open up the three dimensionality all the time. The image is moving. You're seeing more and more and more, and the perspective and the background's changing, and the focus is changing. So you can describe a journey, which we did in that case, in a very very powerful way. Um, you know, so that that would be one example. And also, um, um, for example, I mean, one of the you know, I'm I'm probably jumping all over the place here because. It's difficult because all of these thoughts kind of relate together in one way or another. We we used the 5D because we um, wanted to explore absolutely um, the shallowest possible depth of field because um, uh, Hugh Laurie was going through a, a period of um, extreme stress and we wanted to 
make the episode about what was inside his head. So the the use of very, very, very shallow depth of field enabled us to put him into this completely soft and out of focus world when there wouldn't be any other distraction at all. Everything else was just a pastel background, um, which incidentally, um, you know, is is a technique that you can do on the 5D because of the large sensor, uh, which is totally and absolutely unachievable on um, any motion picture camera that might cost, um, you know, a quarter of a million dollars, which is often what they cost, plus lenses and so on and so forth. So, um, you know, that that would be a very good example of how, um, you know, this this kind of transitional, um, you know, element you can bring to play and, and tell the story just to separate an actor from his background. So you you immediately put yourself into the actor's head and into his headspace. And, um, you know, so you become part of his world rather than him being part of the world. The world is unimportant. And um, and so you, you put the viewer into his head, basically. So that, I think that would be a fair example. Yeah, you make an excellent point there yeah. because you you take what the camera gives you in terms of limited depth of field um, and also in terms of low light capability. But you make both of those qualities serve the story that you're, you're, you're trying to tell, I think for a large part, because of the newness of the product, a lot of what I was seeing out there was making those qualities, the sort of the point of interest, not so much the story or that there was anything interesting to say, but just touting the fact that, Hey, I can take this, this camera and with virtually no light, make this incredible looking photograph and look at this very shallow depth of field but after seeing in hundreds of thousands of these, you know, on YouTube and Vimeo, after a while you've gone, well, yeah, I've seen it. What what can you do next with it? Um, that's a tough question. <laughs> um, I think, um, you know, um, it was rather interesting. I mean, I cast when we first started shooting with the, um, the DSLR um, platform, um, our cast for the first few days felt that they were surrounded by a bunch of paparazzi and it was a rather strange feeling for them because then they're normally used to sort of having large bulky cameras with magazines and a crew standing around them. And so um, that psychological um, barrier, we, we luckily got over in a couple of days. But I think um, I think the world is just beginning to open um, in terms of what's possible with these cameras. I mean, now, I mean, just take, for example, how, you know, budgets and um, are getting smaller and smaller and smaller, even on a show like Harris, which is one of the most popular shows in the world and it's viewed by 88 billion people a week and blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, we still, um, you know, have to fight for lighting equipment, uh, why we need this, why we need that. Um, when we take something like a 5D, we can create images that are just non-achievable on film. Just for example, um, you know, if we go out and do a car shoot at night, I mean, um, until we started using cameras such as the 5D, we would take, um, you know, a car, we'd put it on a low loader, we'd tow it with a trailer, the director would be watching all of this from a, um, a video hook line, uh, you know, we call Video Village on a, on the trailer that's pulling the car. Um, the cameras, because they're bulky, would tend to be 
um, on the side of the low loader shooting in through the windows and we'd have lighting equipment, we'd have a generator and so on and so forth. And now um, we can go out and shoot a car scene by literally um, one of our operators or myself just literally jumping into the passenger seat um, putting some light panels on the dashboard, which is the way that a lot of us DPs light car shoots, and balancing that to the exterior environment that's been chosen for the run. And so we save hours and hours and hours of very hard work. And so um, in terms of cost saving, um, it's phenomenal. In terms of the results you achieve, it's phenomenal. Um, um, but I, I think we've got a lot, a long way to go with these cameras, obviously. I mean, you better than probably anybody else know that um, and the 5D and the DSLR um, popularity came out of um, um, basically photojournalists said, hey, uh, excuse me, could we have some little device in this camera where we could shoot a little web video with a celebrity we've just photographed? And, Canon came up with this and um, never really imagined what a revolution and um, uh, they'd be causing when um, some of the pioneers in there, Shane Hurlbut and um, um, you know Philip Bloom, realized what this was all about and realized that actually the image-making quality was really, um, in certain circumstances, absolutely fantastic and suitable for use in sort of large um, large projects. Um, you know, you suddenly got a device that um, uh, can be used to achieve images that were never, ever before possible. But moving on from that, um, where I, I see this can go is because the devices are quite small. Um, one of my future projects is to build a, um, a high dynamic range um, uh, Canon 5D setup where I can literally capture perhaps even up to 20 stops of light. And for um, the listeners that don't know what that is, I mean, the dynamic range of film is something from like about 14 stops from pure black to um, pure white. Um, HD SLR cameras are around the range of 10. Um, but by um, combining two cameras via a 50-50 prism, um, so you're basically shooting the same image with two cameras simultaneously, one of which is designed to capture the highlights and the other is designed to capture the um, the shadow details um, and then combining the images in post. I think we're very soon going to be able to, for example, shoot a scene with an African-American gentleman in a black velvet suit in an alleyway um, downtown L.A., middle of the day, um, with a, a blonde girl wearing a white wedding dress out in the sunshine. And I think we'll be able to capture images like that that uh, have um, just not been achievable in any in any form, um, uh, just because the human eye obviously can read, you know, so much more um, in shadow, in, in highlights, and, you know, the, with the brain's interpretation, putting these images together. And I think we'll be able to do this um, you know, via, via these cameras um, in very short order and, um, you know, whether we have the ability to uh, create that brightness range in projection in theatres will be um, interesting to see. Um, that's not quite there yet, but these are the sorts of future possibilities that um, uh, are coming and also, excuse me, <coughs> 
Um, you know, the, uh, the ability to shoot in incredible low light is just uh, unbelievable. I mean, it's, um, you know, a lot of people interpret that as a, um, a way that you can just basically go out and shoot in street lighting. Um, good lighting is never going to go away. It's always going to need to be controlled, um, you know, to create texture, to create um, shape, to create, um, you know, a good composition. And um, so it can never be just something you just go out and shoot. And it's it's not a miracle maker. It's never going to make great images. It's still going to need a, um, a cinematographer or a, a photographer to basically, you know, create beautiful light and shade and shape and texture and depth. And, um, you know, so we'll never, ever get away from that. But it... It just gives us so much more um, uh, armory to deal with um, more difficult situations. I think you know. Let's let's talk a little more about about lighting. How 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 differently do you have to shoot now? Not only because you're dealing with a, a, a narrower narrower um, uh, tonal range in terms of brightness, but also because now you have to factor in you know, color temperature and maybe even the variability of sensor to sensor on, on multiple cameras if you're using more than one. Right. Um, I think it's, um, it is a little bit more tricky in some ways. As, as we know, um, I think all the HD um, DSLRs, um, and they all basically work with fairly compressed data. Um, so I think there's a danger of, going too far in terms of committing to um, color um, at too early a stage. So I tend to um, back off what I do on film. I mean, just take, for example, if you were shooting a night scene, it's sort of fairly conventional that moonlight is kind of blue or, you know, that comes in through the windows. And it's fairly conventional that tungsten lighting in the night scene is kind of warm and for those that know you, you often use what we would call a quarter CTO filter for that, which is about a quarter of the strength of, um, say, a wrap 85. So it's taking the image into a slightly amber world um, just because tungsten lighting tends to be, you know, warmer than daylight by a long, long way. So one tends to go with that kind of theory. And it's become a cinema convention anyway. And, you know, as so many things have. I mean, um, when you break conventions that people uh, are used to seeing, um, you better have a damn good reason for it. Otherwise, people will question why the colors are weird. Um, um, you know, so um, you start with that. Um, because of the compression, you've got to be a little bit careful about pushing that too far because um, as a result of the H.264 compression, the the color tends to be baked in, so it's often difficult to come back from that in um, either a program like Color or, you know, I'm luckily in the position where I have a, um, a very, very excellent um, post house called the Post Group where we um, basically use a program called New Coder where we can, having converted it into, um, um, you know, a 444 tape format, we can then play individually with windows where we brighten areas, darken areas, vignette an image, shift the colors in any particular area. You you find that, um, <coughs> excuse me, um, 
you find that um, uh, very often um, two actors that appear to your naked eye to be um, perfectly well um, balanced and made up have different complexion tones and these sorts of differences tend to get exaggerated in the digital format and um, you know so you've got to be very much more aware of um, you know um, um, these sorts of differences and not committing too much to um, rich color so I would tend a bit to, to shoot much more neutral than I would on film just so that when I go into post it gives me somewhere to go I can shifted in any direction much more than I would if I already committed too much. Um, so I think that's a very important thing to know. Um, you know, there's a, there's a limit to how much you can do in color, um, color the program in Final Cut and so on and so forth. Um, as I said, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate to have the, the best tools to kind of be able to um, manipulate the image afterwards, which is a very, very, very important part of the process. I mean, for example, we never ever um, um, incorporate digital imagery um, into cut with film without adding film grain. And you'd think, well, well, what a strange thing. I mean, why would you want to put film grain back into the image? And it's just purely because, you know, most um, childhood memories of most people even now are, are not actually looking at the clarity of um, um, absolutely clean video. They're, they're used to watching movies at the theater and um, realize it or not, there's a certain grain component there that's shifting that makes it feel more cinematic. And um, um, there's a lot of things that you achieve with that. First of all, you you put your digital material that you've captured into a more cinematic world. But also, um, as we know, there are, you know, there are some issues with all the HD DSLR cameras that um, is called banding or um, um, compression artifacting. And you can see a graduated tone if you're shooting a, a, a rather bald sky that goes from a sort of bright tone to a darker tone over a, a large area. That tone um, with the uh, digital format, the HD DSLR format, can be broken up into fairly subtle bands of density that are rather ugly and unappealing. And just by the mere fact of adding grain, um, just almost takes 90% of that away. Um, so this is, um, you know, uh, something that's um, terribly important to kind of um, know how to manipulate the material afterwards if, in fact, you, you're going for a very, very high production level. Um, you know, sometimes um, if you're shooting documentaries or things like that, to hell with it, because I, I've always believed that if you have a great story and um, a great script, you could shoot the, the thing on gaffer table almost, you know, if you've got great actors and uh, the medium can't, you know, um, be the ultimate end. I mean, the script and the acting and the way in which the director's constructed scenes will always be 90% of your success. I mean, what we do, if we're smart as um, cinematographers, is just to en enhance that art, just to, um, you know, strengthen that story by, you know, perhaps not giving away all your tricks at the beginning, saving, um, you know, some of your more powerful image making and your best lighting for moments where it really shows, um, you know, that, that kind of thing. So there's so many things that go into the process of making, uh, um, you know, 
um, images sort of work for, for the director for the project. Um, well, you're, um, sharing a, you're sharing a lot yourself because you're doing a sort of a month-long workshop where both people who are in the motion picture industry and still photographers who want to learn video are studying with you over four consecutive weekends. Tell us a little bit about that, but especially from the perspective of the still photographers that are coming um, to you to learn, you know, to learn from you. What what are they hoping for, and what what are you stressing to them as opposed to those who are already, you know, working as cinematographers or directors of photography? Well, um, this is this is great, actually. You know, first of all, I I discovered that I had a passion for teaching. Um, uh, one of the things I think is absolutely fantastic is what um, Canon has gifted the world with. I, I just think the fact that, you know, whether by design or by accident doesn't really matter. They suddenly produced a camera that could people could go out and shoot and given a good script, given some good actors, they, they, you have no excuse anymore. You can actually make a fantastic piece of work, obviously needs to be lit, so on and so forth. And, um, you basically can um, go out and shoot a movie that can be projected onto a 60-foot screen. And um, this was never possible before. So this democratization of the filmmaking process, to me, is probably the most exciting single thing about the revolution that's happened. And um, I just love teaching people. Um, you know, my goodness, here we are. Just, you know, there's not many people that, you know, as, as people interested in photography that, they can't afford a set of uh, um, reasonable lenses and um, a Canon 5D, 70 or 1D Mark IV. And so that's really what we concentrate on in the workshop is um, we run the most hands-on workshop that um, exists. I mean, within the first day, um, all our students all have a 5D and a lens and they're all shooting and getting a feeling for it, understanding how to set the menus um, understanding how to set up the camera to capture the, the most dynamic range and understanding how you can use the ISO to control the quality of your image in terms of depth of field and emphasis and composition, all of the things that I've been basically doing in my working life for 30 years. And, uh, um, you know, so um, I think that's what people can expect. It's It's... Um, they can come as a stills photographer and walk away. And by the way, we our original workshop was four weekends. Um, we actually found we had, um, because we were sort of just beginning at that point in time, we realized we actually had a lot of dead air in it. So now it works as a three-day workshop. Um, it's a shame sometimes that I can't um, do these as three consecutive days, but I will be able to once we go on to um, hiatus on house, which is sometime mid-April, but obviously d during our shooting schedule, um, um, you know, t working on TV is brutally tough. I mean, it's 14-hour days and very long hours. Well, obviously long hours, but, you know, very tough work, and you, you have to keep on schedule. If you get behind, it becomes really difficult. Um, you know, so... Uh, I think in in the workshop we teach um, everything about how to use the camera. We teach about lighting, you know, how to get the best out of lighting for the HD DSLR platform. 
uh, we teach um, how you accessorize the camera in terms of motion rigs, um, you know, and all the commercial products that make the camera or turn the, the camera into a, in a into a fully functional shooting machine to shoot anything you want. And this, you know, could range either via your your budget or your project, um, you know, from the very simplest um, camera out of the box right through to, you know, onboard video um, where you can loop back to Video Village so directors and writers and producers can actually see what you're shooting as um, as you can as you um, um, continue shooting. Um, so uh, it really is huge. I mean, um, um, but it, it's the hands-on thing that I think separates us from all the rest. We we have um, a massive amount of 5Ds. Thank you, Canon, very much. Um, uh, so everybody has a camera, everybody has a lens, and everybody's shooting. And um, people walk away feeling very confident they could actually make a movie, and I don't care where they come from. And um, uh, we've had such great um, feedback so far on how this has helped people. And um, um, I'm also, I use a lot of um, people that I can <laughs> drag off the show I do house over the weekends to uh, come and help. So it's all industry professionals and people that very much know what they're doing. I, of course, get completely spoiled. Um, uh, you know, and we, um, you know, we, we really do take advantage of um, professionals working in the industry, how that's changed their lives and how they work with some of the difficulties that you encompass, of course, with Canon lenses. They're designed for stills photographers. I think um, um, I'm a a purist Canon guy because I don't believe in um, having this kind of uh, democratization of the film industry that then requires you to go and buy um, a 60,000 set of lenses. That doesn't work for me. And I, I know in fairly short order, I think Canon will be coming out with um, cinema lenses, which will probably be a quarter of the price of, um, you know, um, conventional movie lenses because it's all about market share. And, you know, as we know, if you make millions of things, then they obviously get a lot cheaper than if you make just a few hundred um You know, so um, we end up, we, all our workshops end up with, um, uh, we had this idea of coming up with um, uh, a working um, video at the end that had to be a functional piece of work, which all the students participate in. It either had to be a film about a local business that would be of use to them in their um, website and their advertising. Um, at the moment, our um, project is a music video, which we're helping out, who we think are a very talented band, um, uh, Andre Bell, um, B-E-L-L-E, and that's Andre, A-N-D-R-E-E, Bell, absolutely fantastic musician. And so we're, um, it's, it's that, you know, they give, give us their time and they, they walk away from the workshop with a fantastic video that all the students feel proud that they participated in. So um, when I say hands-on, I mean, it's hands-on to the extreme and um, everybody feels um you know that they achieved a massive amount they can uh, um have a copy of their work they um you know um really do make this huge change and um now it's the three day workshop we'll go back to doing the three day intensives once i'm um, off house during after april but that's that's basically the plot behind the, the workshop and um 
it's very intimate. It's um, about 35 students at the most. Um, so we, um, you know, but we've got huge plans for the future. We plan to go out on the road and maybe um, go under canvas for five days and make a documentary about a vineyard where, you know, photographers, videographers, cinematographers bond over a campfire. We get our um, asses kicked to four in the morning to get up and go and shoot the sunrise. But basically, it'll it'll be a life experience plus a photographic learning um, project, and um, that's something I'm really, really looking forward to, and oh. something that Canon's extremely excited about because it's never been done before. That sounds fantastic. Um, that sounds fantastic. We're also working on. Um, 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 attracting Japanese students to come to the States to um, um, participate in a workshop where we would have, we've already had a lot of Japanese film students come through the, the class so that uh, um, this would be a great um, student vacation for them to come overseas to learn about photography, filmmaking, all of that, and then they can go off and um, um, photograph the Grand Canyon and so on and so forth. And um, we're also thinking about um, moving into um, th- using the 5Ds or you know the, the Canon system to shoot a 3D glass, and um, and then one of our next classes is going to be. Everybody asks me what what is phase two of our class, and I say, well, really, it's about lighting because once you know how to uh, drive a car, I mean, there isn't really much more you can tell them about it. It's just how do you drive it well. And um, so I think um, um, in the high ages, we'll be doing very lighting intensive um, workshops where I basically give away all the tricks I've learned over 30 or 40 years about how you light huge night exteriors. And um, uh, we also concentrate on, you know, a lot on, you know, basically how you can even buy stuff from Home Depot to uh, um, create amazing lighting effects because, as you know, as soon as something has a photographic label on it it um uh, it basically becomes 10 times more expensive and you can use um i mean one of the lights that we used for our season finale was those you know horrible looking lights that people use on building sites which is those what i call the double-headed monsters you can turn that into a beautiful lighting device and they cost literally 60 dollars and um you know, so it's the cater for sort of low-budget filmmakers to inspire people, and it's it's all about um, inspiration. Get out there, go do it. You know, go make your film. You know, and um, um, I mean, after my hours and after doing the workshop, the last thing you think that I would be interested in doing is going out and making films. But last summer, um, I just got all my crew from the house and said, hey guys, you know, I need your time for three days. We went out to Barstow and made a fabulous little film and, um, you know, um, nobody was paid. I mean, you know, we were just fed, just um, uh, stayed in a rotten hotel and um, shot a fantastic film in three days and just, you know, it's so wonderful to do that and um, I think that's what people um, can now wake up and realize that they, they can do this and uh, this is so important to realize that you no longer need um you know a hundred thousand dollars worth of film equipment to to make something very 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 special and certainly suitable of going going on a big screen in a movie theater you know? yeah that's absolutely one of the, the most exciting things about this technology a lot of people are kind of thrown off by, by particularly still photographers but i think that there there's so much more that that people are going to be able to do that 
before before was just prohibitively expensive to do. But what, one of the things I want to ask you before we, we end here is that there's a, been a whole industry built around these these cameras in terms of accessorizing, uh, in terms of motion rigs, in terms of follow focus mechanisms, uh, finder eyepieces. For someone who's interested in doing this, but they don't want to necessarily have to spend twenty or thirty thousand dollars to get their camera up to snuff with that respect. What what are some of the sort of the basic tools that you think are absolutely necessary to make the most out of what these camera cameras are capable of? Well I think that's a really good question. Um when we went looking for sponsors for our workshops, I was really, really careful to kind of um, think um, very much about the amateur market and um, uh, all the the emerging professional markets, but certainly the low budget market. So we immediately got into bed, into bed with Red Rock um, because I think their price point is exactly right for what these cameras cost. There's no point in buying a $2,500 camera and then spending 10000 on accessories for it. And I think they make really great equipment. I think the kinds of things you immediately need is a way to put the camera on your shoulder um, because just holding it in front of you will be shaky and not very successful. So a shoulder rig with um, um, an Anton Bauer battery on the back that'll counterweight in a little monitor, and I suggest Marshall monitors because I think they're the best that you can get for the price, and they they give you fantastic tools to um, uh, enable you to judge exposure very accurately and judge focus. Um, uh, so these these are the starting points: a matte box to protect your lens, a follow focus device, and. Um, so these things aren't all that expensive if you if you're careful to choose the right company doing the right stuff and it you know what you don't want to do is to end up with a Volkswagen with a solid gold roof rack and that's what I think a lot of people have um, been foolish enough thinking is necessary uh, it's uh, you know um, you shouldn't be spending ten thousand dollars on the lenses just work with the Canon lenses use a higher ISO if you're in trouble with focus. Um, you know, good focus pullers are still necessary, but, um, you know, you can work with these lenses and we never ever use anything other than Canon lenses. We could afford any lenses we wanted, but, um, you know, we just choose to go with Canon because they're great. Um, the lens flare, um, the lens coatings are wonderful and it's the principle of not, um, you know, just, uh, overdoing something that should basically be a camera for the people and um um oh by the way i don't know if you knew but i i was just recently made an eol which is a great honor for me and um an explorer of light by canon so um this is going to help enormously with our workshops it's going to give me access to um new products coming from canon which i'll um sort of help us with the longevity of our, our workshops because eventually as we know, I mean, uh, um, teaching workshops on the 5D will be trying to talk people into taking a workshop and driving a Toyota Corolla, you know, because uh, <laughs> everyone will have them and everyone will be doing this and whether they change in shape or form remains to be seen. But well, congratulations, yeah, basically we've just been exciting. given gifts and um, these gifts we all need to be going out and using and um, using to make great films do it on the weekend if you have have a job you can now have 
show them on Vimeo or on YouTube. Um, we have now distribution that never existed. We now have the tools to make films, to make fantastic little stories. Um, I mean, there's no excuse, no excuse for anybody not to be chasing their dreams now, you know. And even if you can't afford to buy this stuff, you can rent it from Sammy's camera, I mean, for nothing for the weekend. You can borrow it off friends, you know. Um, so we, we're just entering this whole new world, which I think is incredibly exciting. And um, it's, it's, it really is just when we thought it was all kind of safe and sound. And um, it's just changed so much. And, you know, if this is what's happened in the last two years, which basically is it, is what has happened, I mean, imagine the next year what's going to happen, the new tools are coming out and the fact that the economics of it all are so feasible now for people to... To, to do what they want to do. It's um, absolutely wonderful, you know. Absolutely. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is that they recommend another photographer, or, or your case, you can even recommend another cinematographer that our listeners can discover and explore for themselves. And it can be somebody who you've long admired or someone you've discovered recently. So who would that one person be and why? Um. I've become a very dear friend of Rodney Charters recently, who's also an EOL. Um, um, there's, you know, there's a handful of cinematographers in the the, the big time motion picture world um, that I've always loved. I mean, you know, going way back to Storaro and all of that. But um, you know, there are cinematographers such as Darius Conji and. Um, you know, a, a lot of very, very wonderful people, but um, people that are chasing the revolution and doing it really, really well. Um, I think Rodney Charters is a prime example of not only an, an incredibly talented DP who is certainly worth following, but also an absolutely wonderful human being. And what I what I think is terribly important is to forget about any jealousy in terms of giving away your secrets because. Um, if you're good enough to be a good DP, then you should have absolutely no fear in telling people um, any of your, the tricks of your trade and sharing your information because um, that's all that does is to inspire you into just doing better. And um, so people should never have fear and jealousy of um, hiding information because, first of all, it's very short term. And I think the sharing of information is so important and um, um does that answer your question in Abs kind of way no absolutely absolutely and, and thank you thank you for that suggestion and thank you for making the time today uh, absolutely um my the pleasure is all mine and um best of luck with your program i think it's absolutely wonderful and um you know thank you so much for taking the time with me thanks for joining us again if you have any comments please drop me a line at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. You can also join our community of photographers on Flickr, Facebook, and Twitter. Links to each can be found on the website. And remember, you can now pre-order my new book, Capturing the Light, Improving Your Photography Using Available Light, through Amazon. A link is also on the webpage. Till next time, this is Ibarian X. Perello, and this is the candid frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at Photocast Network. 
photocastnetwork.com.